Astonishing Legends would like to thank Health IQ, Lightstream, Squarespace, Mint Mobile, our contributors at Patreon.com, and you, our listeners, for making tonight's show possible. Some legends are retold for hundreds of years. Others seem to find their way into foreign cultures from around the world. And then there are those that do both. Which brings us to our question tonight. How does a local legend from the 13th century that takes place in a small German town go on to become world famous and timeless? The legend of the Pied Piper has been shared orally and in written works in multiple languages for over 700 years. It's a story that's so simple that even though it's been adapted and rewritten in infinite ways, it can be told in its entirety in just a few paragraphs. The earliest written version of the legend of the Pied Piper, as told by an eyewitness to the original event, was lost sometime in the late 1300s. Since that version is not available to us, we shall resort to a more well-known text, or at least the English translation of one, and that's the short story called Die Kinder zu Hamel, or The Children of Hamel. It was written by Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, more commonly known as the Brothers Grimm, and their book, Deutsche Sagen, or German Legends, initially published in 1816. It begins on page 330 of that first edition. It's important to note that the Grimm's differentiate between fairy tales and legends by pointing out that legends, like the story of the Pied Piper, typically include names of real people, places, and dates. As their work has been translated from German to English many times over, We've added a few missing pronouns and prepositions here and there to make it easier to follow. In the year 1284, a strange and wondrous figure arrived in Hamel. He was wearing a coat of many colors and was taken to be a rat catcher because he promised to free the town of a plague of rats and mice for a fixed sum of money. The citizens promised to pay him this fee, so the visitor produced a pipe and began to play. Soon, all the rats and mice came running out of the houses and gathered around the Pied Piper in a teeming mass. Once he was convinced that each and everyone followed, he went out of the town, straight into the river Visa, where the vermin plunged after him and drowned. The townspeople, however, now freed of the plague, regretted their promise and refused to pay the piper, who left Hamel in a bitter mood. On June 26th of that same year, he returned, this time dressed as a huntsman, wearing a grim countenance and a wondrous red hat. While the townsfolk were assembled in the church, he again sounded his pipe in the streets. This time, it was not rats and mice that came out, but children. A great many boys and girls, all older than four, came running, among them the grown-up daughter, the mayor, and they were led through the Ostator Gate and into the very heart of a hill, where they all disappeared. Only two children returned because they could not keep up. One was blind and could not show where the others had gone, and the other could not speak and was unable to tell the secret. A last little boy had come back to fetch his coat and so escaped the calamity. A total of 130 children were lost. The street through which the children were led was known in the middle of the 18th century as Bungoloschenstrasse, which means no music nor dance can be allowed there. When a bride was brought to the church with music, 
the musicians had to remain quiet through this lane. The mountain at Hamel, where the children disappeared, is called the Poppenberg or Koppenberg, where left and right, two stones in a cross shape have been erected. As you can hear for yourself, this short, simple legend seems like nothing more than a fairy tale in a way, but it has been told time and time again in many languages for at least 700 years now. Perhaps it stays with us because, on balance, the consensus from historians is that something horrible definitely befell the city of Hamelin in the late 13th century. The question is, what? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. In the year 1284 after the birth of Christ, from Hamel were led away 130 children born at this place, led away by a piper into a mountain. Author unknown, English translation of an inscription on the town hall of Hamelin. Join us tonight for part one of our series following the Pied Piper into history. And we're back. That we are. <laughs> Yours is better <laughs> oh, than mine. There's going to be tons of German accenting anyway. So I feel like I'm going to be accidentally accenting all over the place. Because once <laughs> we'll you be, start you the German it. accent, it's hard to yeah. undo it. And we've been trained to all our lives by movies and TV. All right. So, we, hey, by the way, do you know who else is back? John Wick is back. No, no, John no. John Wick 4. Oh, no? <laughs> well, John Wick probably is back. I think they're going to keep making those. <sighs> but uh, even John Wick couldn't come back without an editor. And speaking of editors, our wonderful uh. editor, Sarah Voorhees Wendell, is back from maternity leave. Oh, yes, of course. Excellent. Well, welcome back, Sarah. We hope you and your family are doing great and settled into all the new routines, if there are any. I'm, I'm sure there are. Yeah. Uh, that go along with adding a plus one to your life. Yes, and hopefully your sleep is returning to normal too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, we had a lot of interesting feedback on our recent Dave Glover Sally House show last week, and nearly all of it was supportive and inquisitive. So thank you guys for sending that in. We're going to pass the pertinent stuff along to Dave, who maintains a pretty low profile online. Oh, yes, good for him. I, I wish I could do that. Oh, before I forget, I really want to give a solid shout out to the Astonishing Research Corps on this particular episode tonight. Yes, here, here. Some topics are better suited for the ARC than others, and this was one of them. Oh, yes, absolutely. Especially with these medieval stories that we cover sometimes. They just came up with such great material and all these varied sources. It was really helpful. So special thanks to Dave Ingham, Falk, Marissa, as always, Quaid, Lauren, and Mike Kishbuker. And of course, our producer and head of research, Tess, for wrangling it all. All right, we got a great show tonight about the Pied Piper, so without further ado, let's get into it. Well, that's been a long time since I actually heard, that's more or less the Grimm Brothers variation on that legend, right? Yes, it is. And it's funny, I had the Brothers Grimm fairy tales when I was a kid. I still have, my mom, yeah. I think, has the hard copy of it somewhere. A lot of us did, yeah. And it's great, but over time, they got watered down a little bit. And this was something that I only learned just as we were working on this show. The Brothers Grimm, those guys were into collecting stories and editing them just to get them out and to preserve them for future generations. They were true yeah. folklorists, some of the earliest ones, and they didn't really write them. So in my mind, I was like, oh, they wrote this, they wrote this. They didn't really write <laughs> it. They went out and captured it, and then they made it 
work. They published it and yeah. put it in a place where everyone could get to it. And so I think that that's really interesting. And and obviously, global culture owes them a great debt of gratitude for having done that, because a lot oh. of that stuff probably would have been lost forever. Especially them really wanting to develop a German identity. Yes. From the various German states and helping to develop Germany's own sense of cultural identity. They did a tremendous effort. And really, they're more editors. They formed the stories so that they were readable from these various oral accounts and just talking with people and going through different textual materials, they were able to glean and comprise a compendium. This story, we've all heard as kids, I would say most of us, I'd be surprised if there were anybody, uh, especially of our era, that has not heard of the Pied Piper story. I don't even know if they're still teaching it in schools, but it's one of the first ones you know. But I never realized as a kid there might be a basis, in fact, for a real event happening that the legend was formed. And we've said this, a lot of legends, there's often a kernel of truth. And in this story particularly, which I never realized as a kid, I was never told this, is that there's a big fat kernel of truth here, I think. Yes, it's not as allegorical or metaphorical as you might have thought when you got older, when you looked back on it in your childhood and you thought, oh, the Pied Piper, yeah, you know, Peter and all the other, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers and all that. <laughs> you just yes. lumped it in with all these stories that just were fun little tales that maybe sometimes were meant to teach something or just be yeah. stories. But this one, it turns out, when you drill down on it, there's some really scary stuff at the root of it that it seems to be a solid piece of history. All right, well, let's start drilling down on this legend here specifically. The first thing I wanted to mention here is that the other part of the title, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, I didn't really know as a kid, I didn't remember anyway, that it's referring to a specific town in Germany. I just knew the story as the Pied Piper, and that, I think a lot of people just know it as that. Well, Hamelin is the English variation on the German name for this small town. In German, I'm going to do my best here is Hamelin with a soft N. Pretty so good, pretty good. I'll just see how many emails come rolling in from our dear German listeners. Yeah, but that's the pronunciation in German. So we're going to say it both ways as we get through the show. Hamelin, because I've just been practicing it for days now, or Hamelin, depending on who is writing. And in German, also, the title is also known as Rattenfinger von Hameln. Mm. How'd you like that? Rattenfinger von Hameln, which means the rat catcher from Hameln or Hamelin. Uh, you know, this uh, reminds me of a restaurant that was really close to a place that you and I both worked at various times called uh, Rockenwagner. Oh, the, <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> still was... Still around. That's a bakery. I was, thought you were going to say it had something to do with rats in the title, but really that's really unappetizing for a lot of people to have yes. any association no, with doesn't. rats with your restaurant. Well, the titular character is also known as the Pan Piper. He's got some kind of flute, some kind of pipe flute. It's been described in various ways as silver. Robert Browning, uh, the poet we're going to discuss here in his version, it's a cane flute. In this version, children over the age of four only were taken. So four and older. So no, over kind of toddler age because they yeah. had to walk. They had to follow them. I'm not sure if that's a detail of convenience to make the story work or if that right. will connect back to the actual event. It's hard to say. Well, here's something I wanted to know as a kid, and I didn't know the definition of until later, is what is a pied piper? Because as a child, I just thought it sounded like he makes or delivers pies, and I was very excited about that. Well, <laughs> the Merriam-Webster definition of pied is two or more colors in blotches. Also, it could be wearing or having a party-colored, and that is not like a P-A-R-T-Y party. It means 
having a predominant color broken by patches of one or more other colors. So that would describe the coat, a parti-colored coat. And the Victorian English poet that we're going to be talking about and playwright Robert Browning in his poem, The Pied Piper of Hamelin, A Child's Story, written in 1842, described very specifically this Pied Piper as wearing a half-yellow, half-red coat and having a matching scarf that was half-red, half-yellow. And it now, to me, sounds like the Joker. Yes, and I believe the pipe hung from the end of the scarf, actually. That's right, yeah. Yeah. So he was very specific in his description, which was based on other previous descriptions, and he he made it his own. But the physical description of the piper, or he's also known as a magician, or I tend to think of him as kind of a Svengali character, is the main motif of this legend. The piper had a look that distinguished him from the common folk in dress and physical makeup. He was tall, he was handsome, he was striking, he looked different from everybody else. That made everyone else in the town take notice of him, and it was a little bit spellbinding. I'm not going to say disco wizardy. But, uh, <laughs> ah, nobody uh, is the disco wizard. <laughs> the glass from our collection that no one understands. It was just something, the only reason we have a glass collection is because I wanted the disco wizard to be... You know, I think it might be my favorite because it's so strange and esoteric. Uh, David did a great job with the characterization on that. Yes, David Spencer, shout out to you. That's right. Hi, this is Elizabeth, and when I'm not casting spells, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Why don't you tell our audience a little bit about Svengali, though? Who was you? You mentioned a type of Svengali. Who was Svengali? That name comes up a lot, so I like to explain these things also to remind myself. And uh, for those who may not know, it's a little bit interesting here. It's even, uh, I believe, mentioned in Seinfeld quite a bit. It's a person who manipulates or exerts excessive control over another. And mm. part of the Merriam-Webster entry on this is: Did you know, in Georges Dumarier's 1894 novel Trilby? A young artist's model named Trilby O'Farrell falls under the spell of Svengali, a villainous musician and hypnotist. Mm. Svengali trains Trilby's voice through hypnosis and transforms her into a singing star, subjugating her completely in the process. Svengali's maleficent powers of persuasion made such an impression on the reading public that by 1919, his name was being used generically as a term for any wickedly manipulative individual. So a couple of points here, which I think are relevant. Music also plays a prominent role in this Fingali tale and also the Pied Piper as something that lures people, seduces them. Music, calming the savage beast, something about that tone or vibration or harmonics or through it as a medium, music. And were the children hypnotized by the music in a way to follow him? There's something about that. Yeah, music and hypnotism. On the surface, it all seems very jovial. But then when you yeah. stop to think about it, even just a little, it almost immediately gets a little frightening. Just this idea oh, <laughs> of this song being played that you can't resist. The siren's call, yeah. Yeah, the si exactly. That's obviously the parallel. It is the siren call, and it's going to render you unable to control yourself. And not only that, you're going to follow whatever it is to your doom. It is music as a spell, in a way. As he's known as a magician, he was able to cast a spell on these kids, and only a couple of them 
per some versions of the story, were able to escape for various reasons. And by the way, this is exactly what they were talking about in Footloose. I just want to say. <laughs> People like, mock it, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but they found in the Bible, there's a time to dance there's and a, a time, time to sow and reap and, uh, and dance to uh, Kenny Loggins. <laughs> well, where does this story start here? Where's the seed, the kernel of this possibly real event? And as you said, if this really did happen, imagine 130 of the children of the town, which is not that big, losing all their children. This would be traumatic, devastating. Yeah. yeah. When one child goes missing, the whole community is terrified and devastated. So imagine that really happening at the time and how these people must have felt, all these adults and parents. Well, one of the earliest known depictions or mention of this story or legend comes from an image of the piper in a stained glass window in a church in Hamon, dating to around 1300 BCE. Now, the church was damaged in 1660, but several written accounts of the legend survived. I remember coming across this in our research, and now I'm not, I don't want to be quoted on it, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that was a fire. It wasn't totally devastated because the church seems to be still around. Yes. It is the Marktkirche Market Church yes, market. of Zand Nikolai. Yes, the Market Church, which is, I think it's next to. And so this description comes from the Marktkirche Market Church of San Nikolai, their website. And so we just have to rely on a Google translation. So this might be a little wonky, but their description is the arched window in the eastern yoke of the southern aisle refers to the Pied Piper saga. The window was designed by Klaus Zimmer in 1984 based on a poster template. So, of course, that original window is no longer, it's been recreated. The Markkirche in St. Nikolai is Hameln's second oldest church and is located in the center of the old town, right next to the wedding house on the horse market. And the wedding house is going to feature prominently also in the surviving legends and customs of the town. The name, St. Nikolai, comes from St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra. Remember him from the fourth century? Yes. There you go. Everything's connected, uh, at least this story here. Remind Uh, our listeners why I should remember him. (laughs) Well, he became very popular in the Middle Ages and, among other things, as a patron saint of shipping. And I don't know if we mentioned this in the Christmas special, the Christmas Eve special we did. He was on a a merchant ship, I believe, taking him to Myra, and there was a terrible, terrible storm and they were getting battered around, and they all thought uh, all hands were going to be lost. The ship was going to be sunk in this bad storm, and he was aboard, and and the people on the ship begged him, like, please, say a prayer. Talk to the Lord. You got to stop this. We're all going to die. And he's like, okay, I'll see what I can do. He says a prayer. The sky calms. The clouds part. The moon shines brightly. He saves them all, and as soon as he walked into town, they're like, we're making this guy a saint. He saved us all with that miracle. I appreciate your retelling of that. I'm not yes. convinced that he actually <laughs> said, okay, I'll see what I can do. Is that a direct quote or? In Greek, perhaps, okay. because okay. Yeah, if you translate it, it we probably dig deep, comes out people. that way. We dig deep. We try to get the real story here. <laughs> well, that's interesting, though, because uh, the naming of the church can probably be seen in connection with merchant shipping on the Visa River, and that's spelled W-E-S-E-R, and in German it'd be close to Visa or Visa. Yes. But in connection to the story, that's where the piper took the rats and led them to the river. And as he pulled up his vestments and waded into the river, the rats followed him. They all drowned. It's all connected to this town. Everything's mentioned in this legend. That's It's really there. And I believe it was Quaid and the Ark found this pretty good article here. It's an academic paper, and it's titled The Legend of the Pied Piper in the 19th and 20th Centuries, Grimm, Browning, and Skrzynski. 
This paper is by Mary Troxclair Adamson and featured on the website, The Looking Glass, New Perspectives on Children's Literature. And it looks like it's, it's part of a blog called Jabberwocky. Troxclair Adamson starts off by saying there might be a historical basis for this legend, along with the original stained glass window in the St. Nikolai Church that depicted an image of the Pied Piper. The original first written accounts came from the Hamelin Town Chronicle called Donut. And that's donut. not a donut. I know you're going to say donut. No, I was going to say, like, sometimes <laughs> I say to my son, do not touch that. <laughs> well, this this donut here is circa 1311. So oh, it's okay. of the time, pretty old here. And just punching this into Google Translate, donut translate from Latin as give. Yeah. As in donation. Donut, donation, get that? Perhaps it's the giver of information for the town. Well, Trox Claire Adamson cites author Gloria Skrzynski from her book, What Happened in Hamelin, in stating that the reference in the Donat reports that 130 children went missing in the year 1284 BCE after a piper appeared in the town of Hamelin, or Hameln, a town in the German state of Lower Saxony, which is the second largest state by landmass in northwestern Germany. So the earliest surviving written record of the event, according to Bernard Queenan from his book, The Evolution of the Pied Piper, which Adamson cites quite a bit here, it seems to be pretty authoritative on this issue here. We've done a lot of research. Uh, Bernard Queenan, his finding is that it's thought to have originated around the year 1370, this earliest surviving written record. And this account appears in a copy of the Catena Aurea, which translates from Latin as golden chain. And the definition of a Catena or Catena is a compilation of biblical commentary from previous biblical scholars and the commonly titled Catena Aurea by Thomas Aquinas is the most famous catena of the medieval Latin compilations of biblical commentary. But this Piper account shows up as an end note in Latin written by the copy's owner, Heinrich von Herod, written in the style of a monk scribe and dates to around 1370. So here's a, a copy of a famous book originally written by Thomas Aquinas, that this monk, Heinrich von Herod, owns. And in his own copy of this, he writes in Latin a little endnote, which has the story of the Pied Piper, and that this dates to around the year 1370, so not that long after 1284 BCE. Which is when the story is supposed to have taken place. Now, Exa and this copy yes. is, this is a surviving copy. You can see this copy. You can lay hands on this somewhere. It's real. Apparently they have, they still have his copy of the Catena Aurea. That was his, and he just, he made a footnote. So he, he wrote in his own book. I do all the time. He probably did it very well because that's his job. So being a monk scribe makes me feel a little more that this has credence to it. That's what he does. He records information accurately as best he can, or he copies books He's in this field. He's not just somebody scribbling in the margins. Now, I found this to be very interesting. This is the English translation of this endnote. And within it, a point of reference can be found establishing this as the earliest surviving written record. To be noted is a marvelous and truly extraordinary event that occurred in the town of Hamelin, in the Diocese of Minden, in the year of the Lord, 1284, on the very feast day of Saints John and Paul. A young man of thirty years, handsome and in all respects so finely dressed that all who saw him were awestruck by his person and clothing, came in by way of the bridge and the Weser gate. On a silver pipe which he had, of wonderful form, he began to play through the whole town, and all the children hearing him, to the number of one hundred and thirty, 
followed him beyond the eastern wall, almost to the place of the Calvary, or Gallows Field, and vanished and disappeared so that nobody could find out where any one of them had gone. Indeed, the mothers of the children wandered from city to city and discovered nothing. A voice was heard in Rama, and every mother bewailed her son. And as people count by the years of the Lord, or by the first, second, and third after a jubilee, so they have counted in Hamelin by the first, second, and third year after the exodus and departure of the children. This I have found in an old book. And the mother of Herr Johann de Luda, the deacon, saw the children going out. So, there is our first mention of a possible eyewitness account, the mother of deacon Herr Johann de Luda, who supposedly saw the children leaving at least, and Heinrich von Herod, who wrote this account, got this from an old book, quote-unquote, which is apparently lost. Deacon Herr Johann de Luda died in 1378, so it's possible that his mother could have witnessed a very strange, tragic, and real event involving the disappearance of a large group of children in her lifetime, and at least told it to her son. In the Brothers Grimm version of the legend, it's stated, quote, All this was seen by a babysitter who, carrying a child in her arms, had followed them from a distance, but had then turned around and carried the news back to the town. So I wonder, could this babysitter, as described in the Grimm version, have been Deluda's mother, carrying him in her arms as she followed the group and then came back to town. So there is a discrepancy with this. You guys are going to have to bear with me a second yeah. here. It's a lot of German here. There are other sources like Willy Krogman's Der Wattenfänger von Hemmeln, ein Ustersuchung über das Wort in der Sage. Sag. No, wait, Saga? Saga. 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 Let me try yeah. that again. Other sources like Willy Krogman's Der Rattenfanger von Hemmeln, ein Ustersuchung <laughs> Uber das Werden der Saga. At least you knew Uber. Uh, well, yeah, of course I knew Uber. I took one <laughs> yesterday. The translation of that is an investigation into that will be said. This cites <laughs> you the, ask the, Google. Yes, the chorus book of Deccan Lude, circa 1384, which has since been lost, but this was apparently a chorus book owned by Deccan, which, Forrest, you seem to think that he was a deacon a of the church. Yes. Uh, I well, think it says Deccan everywhere. I mean, that's Does not it? just, yeah, it's in multiple sources. Well, I mean, you thought it was a typo in Wikipedia, but I wonder if it's a German spelling of deacon, who knows? Well, I looked that up, and I believe the German spelling is diakon. That's the pronunciation, diakon. The it's same the pronunciation. way we spell it here? It's deacon, yeah, D-E-A-C-O-N. So we've seen it as D-E-C-A-N, and I'm going to take that as a typo that's just been passed along. Okay. It's funny because so many people rip off a primary source and then they republish it 50 billion places. It's the whole creepypasta sure. thing. And so then a typo becomes the new way of things. But anyway. It becomes legend. Deacon Lude of Hamlin, his choir book, reportedly contained an eyewitness account of the event written in Latin verse by his grandmother. The book disappeared sometime around 1384, they think. They're not sure. But this would make sense because that's less than 100 years after it happened. So his grandmother yeah. could have easily been... The eyewitness. Grandmother or mother. So or it, mother, again, yeah. there's a little bit of, yeah, discrepancy here, but obviously somebody who's a maternal figure, grandmother or, or of Deccan, Luda. So this happened around 1384. 
this is an account. So this original account has since been lost, but you got a name here of somebody who saw something, who claimed to have seen something and been a part of it, but not so much that they disappeared themselves. Hi, I'm Rob from Cape Breton Island, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends. Well, to add to the pile here, here's another confusing timeline possible discrepancy or just another name for the same thing. Some sources cite the Lunenburg manuscript and that having a few lines in German, and that appears to be the oldest surviving account. That would date sometime around 1440 to 1450, so that time's a little later than... Johann de Lude, who died in 1378. That's the thing. When you look at all the different sources, at least the research that we could see online anyway, some sites are saying those two are the same thing. Others are saying, yeah, it's it's confusing. It's confusing. There is a takeaway and a distillation of what seems to be the generally agreed upon truth and that there is an account written in Latin in some book from the time period that describes an account of this event that was written in an earlier book, which has since been lost. You right. never know. They, sometimes these things pop up. But yeah. as far as I can tell, the original book where it was written down, this account, is gone. But somebody who seems to be very credible read that account and rewrote it into their own book. And within that manuscript is a retelling of this of this book, which actually has the names and the dates in it. So... Yeah, it's going to be a few decades after the original event, but it seems to be at least a decent retelling and a good pointer to this original material that was lost. And again, with the coin that was minted to commemorate the event, the stained glass, the inscription at the church, all these things are very firmly cemented within the history of the town of Hamelin and that it was in their own chronicles. It was noted at the time. That description has been lost, but a lot of credible people have commented on it at the time, that, yeah, that was in the town chronicle. This seemed to have happened, and they documented it. But there's no original document, yes, of the time. You know, you mentioned that coin, because they did mint a coin. Yeah. I went to look for it online, because I was curious, you know, if you can yeah. get one. What, wouldn't that be a cool thing to have? I, mean, I have no idea if there's any of them. And <laughs> the bummer of that is, when you pop that into Google search, yeah. there is some kind of e-coin out there, like a Bitcoin variant, that's called Pied Piper coin. <laughs> what? Really? Yeah, so you get 5,000 pages of things about the Pied Piper coin, e-coin, instead of any kind of information about the actual coin, which is what I wanted to find. <laughs> <laughs> of course. But, you don't alas. get exactly what you want. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, with this one, it's a little murky, but not that bad, actually. There's other stories. Uh, we've been asked to cover Sonny Bean and some Scottish legends and, and some other things that are just a few sources that are of oral tradition and much harder to nail down. I was very surprised with this story, how much at least solid bits were actually anchored to this legend. Although debating which source actually appeared first and who owned what and uh, who did the telling, that's a little hard to tell other than what we just described here is that, yeah, there, there was an account from somebody around the time. Well, if you go to now the years 1559 to 1565, Count Robin Christoph von Zimmern hmm, well in the Zimmerisch Chronik. I'm just making up stuff now. You're doing good, though. <laughs> it just, just as long as it sounds okay and, yeah. and no Germans uh, or German speakers are listening, I think we're fine. <laughs> this seems to be the earliest account which mentions the plague of rats. 
the Zimmern Chronicle, this was a family chronicle of a noble family, the Zimmerns, which uh, go figure out. I always, I was thinking of Andrew Zimmern, the food guy who has oh, like yeah. a, goes <laughs> yeah. around and eats weird stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't even the watch food adventures. Yeah. yeah, It is pretty cool though. Uh, but uh, that would be his relatives, I guess. They have this family chronicle and it was written by the gentleman you said, I'm not going to say his name again, mm-hmm. who lived from 1519 to 1566. That is one of the first accounts of the story in that chronicle. But yes, it is the introduction of the rats. And I want to make a big deal about this. I want to make a big point about this. Yeah. The rats are not part of the original story. Now, we yeah. started this show in the cold open. We relayed an English translation of the story by the Brothers Grimm, which does include the rats. But what you have to understand is that for 300 years, there were no rats in this story. There yeah. was only the children being led off and disappearing. So That's why I wanted to read that translation of the Latin endnote description by von Herod, because I'm going to go with that. Yeah, I think at some point it's like with history or archaeology, like you just have to pick a side. Yeah. Take a stance and, and just yeah, defend it until something proves you're wrong. Well, as with all legends, of course, in the 86 years since the date of the supposed event to this retelling by Heinrich von Herod, Changes in the legend may have occurred due to who's telling a story, and as well with subsequent literary adaptations and variations, significant biblical references, metaphors, motifs can be found which were used to illustrate a specific point of view or a didactic lesson. So people are now using this legend in the decades and the hundred years afterwards for their own purposes, as often legends are used. They're a handy tool. For example, in von Herod's Endnote, and this would be an early account or a retelling of this story. Uh, he mentions, A voice was heard in Ramah, and every mother bewailed her son, which is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 2, verse 18 in the New Testament. From the New International Version, the passage goes, A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. So von Herod here might be making an allegorical or symbolic connection to the account from the Bible of King Herod the Great and the massacre of the innocents, which is mentioned in the previous verse from Matthew, verse 16, quote, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then verse 17 is, then what was spoken through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. So I thought it was worth mentioning because, uh, oddly, Heinrich von Herod shares the same name with King Herod the Great, the Roman client King of Judea. Although most King Herod or Herod I biographers don't believe the massacre took place. Well, here's something that Mary Troxclair Adamson in her paper states, and I think it sums up the reason that uh, there's a lot of biblical references. This is her writing here. The church likely influenced later tellings of the Pied Piper legend. Early printed versions were for a literate adult minority. As many folktales were adapted by clerics for teaching from their pulpits, the Pied Piper may have been read to general audiences in churches. Actually, she quotes uh, Zipes. You know him, right? Jack David Zipes is an American academic and folklorist, this is coming from Wikipedia, who has published and lectured on the subject of fairy tales. And he's considered one of the great experts on fairy tales and folklore. 
in the United States. He has uh, written several books and also has some great stuff online that you can find specifically about the Pied Piper, which he is also an expert on. So yeah, he, yeah. Com- he comes up a lot when you're researching this. Yeah, and, and that's who she's citing here. But uh, she goes on to write, the first published literary form of the tale was by theologian Hayab Finsalis in Wunderseiken, from German meaning wonders or miracle signs. Those are two translations I, I got. This would be around 1556, which gives an account of the devil coming to Hamelin 180 years earlier. So that would be 1376 and luring the children into a hill with his piping as God's retribution for sin. Hmm. And she's getting that from uh, Queenan. Something that I was kind of mulling over in my head is, is this some kind of demon or devil? You've made a pact with him that you've broken? It's the same story with the devil. He, he grants you a favor. He gets rid of a big problem for you. And then you don't want to pay him. Yeah. And uh, it, that's not the thing to do because he's going to exact a, a much greater cost here. So that literary form of the tale, apparently to this source, is one of the first that was published. So around 300 years after the supposed origin of the event circa 1550, is when rats started appearing in the legend. Now, this would be around the same time when stories of rat catchers from other European towns were appearing. One of the theories we'll discuss later about what might have happened to the children included a mass death by an epidemic disease, like the plague. This idea that the children succumbed to the plague via rats is perhaps why they started showing up in later versions of the story, such as the earliest English version by Richard Verstigan, written in 1605, and his version may have influenced the Brothers Grimm retelling and the inclusion of the rats. Robert Browning also may have been influenced by the theory and chose to set his poem at a later time, which he did. That would make it fit with the arrival of the plague in Europe. And by the way, we have a link from Professor D.L. Ashleman. He's another expert on folklore, and he has this really amazing webpage that covers all of the Grimm's fairy tales. And there's a lot of links on one of his websites too that details every single version, or as many as I guess he could find, of the Pied Piper and all its variances, which he had broken into three categories. One of them had the rat catcher in it. One of them just had somebody who abducted children. And the other category had the rat catcher who also abducted children. So, which is interesting to see them broken out in those different ways. Well, in 1816, Jakob and Wilhelm Grimm, the Brothers Grimm, published, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Die Kinder zu Hameln, or The Children of Hameln, or Hamelin. And this appears as folktale number 244 in volume one. It later became folktale number 245. I'm not sure what extra folktale Hmm. got put in there. (laughs) Uh, But this was in uh, Deutsche Sagen, or German legend. And this collection of legends was intended to complement the Grimm's collection of fairy tales titled Kinder und Hausmarchen, or in English, Children's and Household Tales, which was published in 1812 and 1815. So this was that was volume one. Volume two had the German legends. And again, as we said near the top of the show, it was the Brothers Grimm who felt like a legend had, had actual people's names and dates and places in it, and that that was a difference in what a fairy tale was. They considered it survivals of memory. Yes. They intended to create this distinction between the household fairy tales we all know, told and passed down from generation to generation, and a distinction between that and the legends compiled in the saga. Because unlike fairy tales, those legends were thought to be based on true events that had some real connection to a time and place and and real people. 
Yeah, and one of the things that I didn't really realize until we got into this was what the Brothers Grimm had actually done. They went out and interviewed people and got oral history. They collected oral history, and in a lot of cases, it was from apparently friends of their family, who everybody knows, who's the oldest person in my family that has all these stories. And there's illustrations of them sitting with these women, hearing these older women who are these matriarchs just telling these long series of amazing stories to them. And they were capturing all that. It was such an amazing thing. Deutsche Sagen was published in those two volumes, and it contained legends that were collected from historians' writings, German chapbooks, which is something that uh, we hadn't heard of until this show. Mm. It's a, a small book or pamphlet of popular tales or ballads formerly hawked about by Chapman, or a small book or pamphlet also often of poetry, which you might say like the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam. Yeah, you, you should could. Also the orally told legends that I just mentioned that were recorded from uh, their family friends in Westphalia. So the two most popularly known versions of the Pied Piper legend today are the Grimm Brothers version and Robert Browning's poem. But most all versions, it seems, contained intertextual elements from this first medieval end note in Latin. In the Grimm Brothers version, there are commonalities to the Latin account of the original event, such as descriptions of the time and place, the year, 1284, the image of the piper, the number of the children missing and their grieving mothers, as well as the reference from the Bible of the time. In the Grimm's version, the piper is still a 30-year-old adolescent. However, the tone of the story has become more sinister and ominous, as with the description of the piper's clothing. He first shows up to rid the rats, dressed in bright, fun colors, but after he does his job and the mayor and the town refuse to pay him, he gets angry and he returns again for the children. But now instead of being dressed like a happy, fun harlequin, he's dressed in a hunter's costume with a strange red hat and a dreadful look on his face. He was now there to hunt the children. Now in the Grimm's version, there is more focus on the plight of the children. They're younger than the Latin account may suggest, and there's more sadness described. And also there's an attempt to humanize the collective character of the children in describing their gender and physical afflictions. From the translation of the Grimm's in talking about the legend as if heard orally or from folk accounts of the legend, quote, two, as some say, had lagged behind and came back. One of them was blind and the other mute. The blind one was not able to point out the place, but was able to tell how they had followed the piper. The mute one was able to point out the place, although he or she had heard nothing. One little boy in shirt sleeves had gone along with the others, but had turned back to fetch his jacket and thus escaped the tragedy, for when he returned, the others had already disappeared into a cave within a hill. This cave is still shown. That's a fascinating little uh, footnote there that the Grimm brothers put is that this cave is still there if yeah. you want to go look at it. It's yeah. still there. You can go check it out. Still adds to the documentarian-like nature of their account. I can't help but wonder if there's been any archaeologists up there to look for any Oof. evidence of anything yeah. or out in the fields where they supposedly went. Forrest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Caitlin. Now back to the show. Well, along with helping to create a sense of German identity through their collection of folk tales, the Grimm brothers may have also been using these tales to reform the child-rearing practices of their countrymen of the time. Mary Troxclair Adamson cites Stanley Rosenman's essay, The Pied Piper of Hamlin, Folklore Encounters Malevolent Cults, and stating that problems with treatment towards children in German society in those days included infanticide, child abandonment, and absentee fathers, and makes notes that the German language has its own term for an awareness of the hostility towards children. Kinderfeindlichkeit. 
Did I do that right? <laughs> lick height. No, it's lick. Kinderfeindlichkeit. Yeah, what Forrest said. Now, Jack Zipes, <laughs> in his book, The Brothers Grimm, theorizes that the Grimms were relaying, quote, their own psychological needs, utopian dreams, and socio-political views. He further points out that the Grimm's tales feature themes like loss, fear of separation from loved ones, which my dog has pretty bad, and the importance oh. of the role of the father as a foundation for respect for authority, <clears throat> which my son does not have. Interesting to note <laughs> that in the Grimm's version, no, I'm kidding, he's a good kid. Interesting to note that in the Grimm's version of the tale, there is no specific mention of fathers other than adults in general, and the mayor being the father to a grown daughter who had also followed the piper. And that stuck out to me too, Forrest. There's yeah. some kind of message there about how the mayor's daughter gets special mention. But again, that comes back around. The mayor is the villain when it comes to not paying the piper for the rat That's situation in that particular absolutely. version of the story. Well, when the fathers are absent, the children follow a new authority or father figure in the form of the Pied Piper. So there's your allegorical warning. Well, in Robert Browning's version, we just mentioned him, remember, he's the English poet. His poem, The Pied Piper of Hamelin, written in 1842, Browning has made the tone of the tale more lighthearted, fun, and it's a little cheeky. I, it's got spirited dialogue between the characters, and I actually enjoyed reading it. We could just read the whole thing and probably be done with uh, this episode. <laughs> but I I, you know, was... I enjoyed reading it too, and you know who yeah. it reminded me of and clearly was an inspiration for it was Dr. Seuss. There's, That's there's right. a lot of you, cadence. You were telling me that. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot of cadence similarities there. And musically, it's very similar. Well, he knew what he was doing. And what's interesting, though, is that he never usually wrote directly for children. Browning's poem is addressed to a nine-year-old boy named William or Willie McCready. And at the end of the poem, Browning advises a child audience and readers in general by saying that, let's settle the score with all men. And if anything is owed to them, let's honor our obligations. Different tone than the Grimm version. Browning, in his version, uses poetic license to make the tale his own, really, much like a screenwriter would do with a real account, or our good buddy Rich Haddam with the Mothman prophecies. He made it into something else. He, he took bits of that investigation and that novel by John Keel, and he made it his own. So Browning's kind of done the same thing with artistic license here. And rather than trying to make it an accurate reporting of a, of a factual event, so he, he knows what he's doing, and you're supposed to be in on that as well. Uh, he changes the district of Hamelin, uh, the location there, from Hanover to Brunswick, and he sets it at a later date, as we mentioned. Browning's poem is thought to have been influenced by earlier versions of the legend by uh, Wanley and Verstigan. Yes, Verstigan. He, he was actually born Verstigan, but he was later known as Richard Rollins, and he was a, an Anglo-Dutch antiquary publisher, humorist, and translator. One of the things that he's most well known for was his book, A Restitution of Decayed Intelligence and Antiquities Concerning the Most Noble and Renowned English Nation. How's that for a book title? Well, uh, <laughs> that was published in 1605. And what that is known as being is the first English version of the story of the Pied Piper. Of Hamlet, That's right. Which I think I mentioned earlier, but I'm going to restate it because there's a lot to keep up with here. Yeah, no, there's a lot of names and I know there's a lot of dates. and Names and dates, uh, it, right. It gets, which it gets I always confusing. tell you to take out and then <laughs> and then I wind up adding them myself. So, Well, it kind of helps me grok all this in the timeline myself. And it's funny because this is all coming. The seminal stories, actually, like you said, very short. Yeah. Whether Browning was influenced by these other gentlemen like Verstigan or by the Grimm's themselves, what his version has in common with the Grimm version is the description of a colorfully dressed piper getting rid of rats. 
also the town of Hamelin and a mayor and citizens who welch on the payment to the piper and then pay the price. And like the Latin endnote, which we read, he also has biblical references, but pretty common of the era. So the main difference here now of Browning's version from the Grimm's is that more emphasis is placed on the piper being victimized by the stingy citizens and the just price for their greed is losing their children. So Browning's children are portrayed as happy and healthy and unlike their grim version counterparts, they merrily skip off to an implied brighter future. He actually makes you feel bad for the lame child that was left behind in this stanza from his poem, which I'm going to read here. It's dull in our town since my playmates left. I can't forget that I'm bereft of all the pleasant sights they see, which the piper also promised me. For he led us, he said, to a joyous land, joining the town and just at hand where waters gushed and fruit trees grew and flowers put forth a fairer hue and everything was strange and new. The sparrows were brighter than the peacocks here and their dogs outran our fallow deer and honeybees had lost their stings and horses were born with eagle's wings. And just as I became assured my lame foot would be speedily cured, the music stopped and I stood still and found myself outside the hill, left alone against my will to go now limping as before and never hear of that country more. So the kid's sad that he missed out. Again, having read a lot of Dr. Seuss, both as a kid and a dad, it is just all, I mean, the next thing I'm <laughs> expecting is the scary green pants with no one inside it. <laughs> green uh, eggs and ham. <laughs> green eggs and ham, and yes. That's probably a better example. I prefer the scary green pants story. But oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. Well, in that same year that Robert Browning wrote his poem, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, his wife, also published a poem called The Cry of the Children, which called attention to the plight of working children of Victorian England and the Industrial Revolution. And when contrasted with his wife's sentiment that these contemporary children would only find peace and happiness if they died young, Robert Browning might be implying that his poem's children may have died and gone to heaven to escape their own miserable circumstances. Again, that's placing it in context with what his wife had uh, written in her poem. Yeah, I mean, isn't it also interesting, though, to take a story that a lot of people think might be true or have elements of truth in it and then make it allegorical or metaphorical, even though it's based on fact? Yeah. Or possibly based on fact. It's like, I don't uh, know if there's a term for that, but when you think about it, it's like, oh, you know what? This story happens to perfectly mirror... You know, this biblical yeah. message in a way, it's interesting to think about that. Reverse engineering it in a way. Writers are now using this legend, which may be just chilling and, and a freaky story footnote in history, for their own devices throughout history. And Robert Browning was one of the more successful ones at it. And his, unlike the Grimm's account of the event, which seems like it's meant to be more frightening or chilling... You know, and this is at the possibility of a deadly, mysterious stranger stealing your children. That's the grim account there. Like, oh my gosh, if this happened, there's a dude out there who steals children. That's frightening. Well, Browning's version is an admonition to the adults to keep your promises and pay your debts, or you'll have to pay the piper, quote unquote. And that's funny. We all know that saying. Children's literature, though, has often been an effective means to get a political statement across to the adults reading to their children, without directly offending or upsetting the parents from all stations. It's a second way to deliver a message that they may not like here. So in this case of the Browning poem, he may have used this his poem here to get 
his socio-political statement to deliver to parents who were corrupt government officials, because uh, whether you're corrupt or not, you probably read to your kids. If you're at least a decent parent, you may be corrupt and on the take or a factory boss exploiting their workers. But if you have kids, you're probably reading to them. So here's a way that he can slip in a message. And uh, his wife's decrying of the children's conditions for kids working in, in the mines in England and them dying early deaths because of this hard work and dangerous work. Hers was a more direct poem. His is like he slipped it in there in an entertaining story, and he ends his poem with a little message that Eddie Parrott is going to have to read. You know what this reminds me of is yeah. the idea that scholars put forth about Shakespeare, about how the, its messages yes. teaching the masses things. It's being put out there to help them understand how how the court works or how they should behave or the bad things that are happening in society, and it, it's coming through these plays and these poetry and uh, and in this case, you know, what the Brownings are doing together in a way. That is absolutely right. And and just because she's mentioned the title here in uh, Adamson's academic paper, just a quick mention of author Gloria Skrzynski. She wrote the young adult fiction novel, What Happened in Hamlin? And that's a young adult historical fiction novel. And it's also a cautionary tale to these tweens, really, because her time when she wrote the book was uh, 1979. So in the 60s and 70s and up to the 80s, uh, you saw a lot of people being influenced by people giving them drugs and and right. cult leaders and trends. And she's like, hey, be careful, young people. She did that. There's she a lot did of an updated version of what the Brownings did. She did it for the 70s. Yeah. yeah. Because of the dangers of, of uh, LSD. She's using different theories as well, like all these folks here. She also included the theory that the Piper was actually poisoning the children with ergot fungus from the rotted grain. And then they had the dancing madness and the Piper used that to get them to actually massacre the rats and into a frenzy and into a cult-like status. So different authors to great effect are using this story for different messages that they're trying to get across. Okay, I think that really covers a lot of the backstory on the origins of this. You can really go deep on this. We have a lot of really great links that we came across and that the Research Corps came across when we started this series so if you want to drill down on it, there's a lot of places to go. In fact, I kind of want to read the, that book from the 70s. <laughs> like, oh, uh, yeah, the, the, the Pied Piper and the Dangers of LSD. It's pretty interesting. Um, <laughs> but it's just such an amazing story. And I don't know why, because it, typically I would have said when we when we looked at this on the surface and I knew it was coming down the pike for us, typically if you said to me, hey, let's do this really big, famous folklore piece or legend yeah. or whatever – I generally would have said, ah, I don't know. But there's yeah. something so intriguing to me about this story. And we're going to talk about that a lot next week when we start getting into all these theories. And man, are there some amazing theories. And the thing that's really interesting to me about a lot of the theories for what may have really happened is a good portion of them, not all of them, <laughs> but a good portion of them, more than 60 or 70% of those particular ones have plausible overlap with what might have happened. It's crazy because generally when you, I, I, and you tell me for us what you think, yeah. but like when you go and you try to come up with explanations, which we've done in the past, you know, I think about the Jersey Devil and like, all right, well, let's figure mm -hmm. this out. Where did this come from? How do you explain this part of it? And you think, well, all right, we make this list of things that we do, and that's what we do on Astonishing Legends. We start with the mundane and go to the fringe, and we try to figure out where in the middle we want to align ourselves with, if we can figure it out. And in those cases, a lot of times, once you start to break down those theories, 
you find that they don't really overlap with what you've learned about the original story. They only do just a little bit, maybe 10%, 15%, and you think, well, it seems like a stretch. I mean, this part works, but 90% of it doesn't make sense. And the problem with this story, or the problem or the challenge, or what's intriguing to me about it, is that a lot of these theories have a lot of overlap with what might have happened, which it kind of leaves you in the dark, even after you've studied it really, really hard. And, yeah. you know, that reminds me of things like Oak Island, or the Voynich Manuscript, or these ones that you get to and you just, you can't figure out what happened. And that's why I keep doing this show. I love finding stuff <laughs> like this. That's going to wrap up part one of our two-part series on the Pied Piper. We'll be back next week with part two. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Coley, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends. Hi, I'm Rob. This is Caitlin in New York City. I understand this is with no implied promise of present or future compensation. Hi, I'm Rob. Galaxy-wide in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our head of research. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. (laughs) 